Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Tzvi Hirschfeld and Rabbi Yedidia Sinclair in conversation on Parashat Bahar. The Pardes Institute, together with Hazon and Korn Publishers, presents The Power of Seven, an evening on Shemitah in the thought of Rav Cook and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. This conversation will be led by Rabbi Yedidia Sinclair and Ambassador Daniel Taub. An introduction will be from Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy. This event will take place Sunday, May 15th in the Beit Midrash at Pardes in Jerusalem. Entrance is free to all who wish to attend. For advanced registration, please visit pardes.org.il forward slash SHMITA2022. And now, here is Rabbi Tzvi Hirschfeld and Rabbi Yedidia Sinclair. My name is Tzvi Hirschfeld, and uh, you are listening to a Parsha podcast. We are on Parshat Bahar, one of the concluding parshiot of the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. And it is our great pleasure to welcome Rav Yedidia Sinclair, originally from London, a resident of Israel for 22 years. Welcome, Rav Yedidia. Thank you. It's great to be here, Shri. I'll tell you just a little bit about him. He's got an incredibly impressive resume. I'll only give some of the highlights. Uh, in addition to his work in Jewish education, which includes some teaching at Pardes, by the way, which I'm sure was his highlight of all the things <laughs> he's done, uh, he's also served as a community rabbi. He is currently uh, the senior rabbinic consultant for Chazon, but you are currently working, your day job uh, is in the field of uh, uh, international development, focusing on uh, social and environmental compliance uh, primarily for companies in the energy field, if I understand mm-hmm. correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you served uh, for six years as vice president of Energia Global. And I think most important for our listeners is you excitingly have a book coming out, a book that relates to our Parsha. It is a translation and commentary of Rav Cook's Shabbat Aris, the Sabbath of the Land. It's available on Magid, and everyone should go out and buy a copy. Uh, Rav Cook is important. Rav Dita's comments are important. Uh, and for those of you who are local in Jerusalem, uh, you'll be speaking here at Pardes uh, as a book launch event on Sunday the 15th at 8 p.m. in our Beit Midrash. Did I leave Sorry. anything out that is important to mention? Important. Nothing that's important. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, we're really thrilled to have you here. So uh, I'll begin by asking you, what stands out for you in this Parsha? Well, uh, I've always loved this Parsha. Uh, it was actually my Mitzvah Parsha. It was also the Parsha of my, uh, of my Uf Uf. So I feel very personally connected to it. And, uh, and that's also partly because of my all-over-the-place career, which uh, Rav Tzvi just talked about, that you're going between economic life and and sort of spiritual life and Jewish education. And I've tried to put those two things together. And, and I suppose that you know, Pasha Baha is what taught me that those things are supposed to go together. That you know that rather than these pursuits being uh, being different and separate, you know, economic life is supposed to be, from a Jewish perspective, a- absolutely interwoven with uh, with our with our spiritual and religious lives. Um, Can you just remind us for a bit? I'm assuming you're focusing in on Shemitah and Yovel, but maybe for some listeners, just a couple sentences on what we're referencing here. Uh, yeah, a- a- absolutely. Um, 
focusing on on Shemitah and Yovel. Uh, Shemitah, the uh, uh, the seven once every seven years sabbatical of the land when we don't uh, we don't farm, uh, we don't work in agricultural societies, and we open up our fields to anybody who wants to come and uh, and eat from them. But then the the Pasha extends that uh, and develops it to a number of other crucial areas of economic life. For example, you know, how you should buy and sell things, how you buy and sell land, taking into account that ultimately the land is God's and doesn't really belong to us fully, not lending an interest, and then, and then, and then finally, not, if one can possibly help it, selling oneself as a, uh, as a, as a slave. So, so the discussion of Shemitah and Yovel uh, goes into a, a in, in, into a, a survey of a number of fundamental economics topics in the, in this parsha. And what would you say? What what is the spiritual message that you discern that's uh, put that's in this very? Most people hear economics and they f- they think very practically. They think of markets. They think of consumption. They worry about inflation. That's what we hear about with economics. What would you say is the Torah's message here about our economy? I think the fundamental message is in, uh, is in verse 22, when it says, Kili Haaretz, because the earth is, uh, is mine. And, and the earth, you know, in the Torah, just meant economic resources, any, any good stuff that you have, uh, which, uh, to, which, you've, which you've earned and which you've developed through your work. Ultimately, it all comes from me, says God. And that comes with, with inherent responsibilities. First of all, to share what you have with the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. Second of all, uh, to, to respect and honor the earth, uh, which gives you the ability to, uh, to, to create wealth uh, and give it a rest every seven years, not to just treat the earth and its resources as something to exploit and use, but to, uh, to let it rest. And that obviously has an ecological implications today uh, and, and, and third spiritually speaking just not to see yourself as Rashi says in the Shemitah year don't, don't lord it over the earth as the, as the master of everything the master of the universe in, your, uh, in, in the Shemitah year but recognize that ultimately it's not yours it comes from God so what do you say, I imagine people ask you this question, that these are very beautiful ideas, but modern economic life is so different from the average farmer, you know, uh, or, or you know, opening up the gates to his orchard once every seven years so people can enjoy the apples that he has there. We're living in, in times of such economic complexity. Most of us uh, don't work as farmers. How would you imagine translating some of these values uh, into our daily life? Well, I've always been very fascinated by the end of the uh, the end of the Pasha, uh, and particularly the last Rashi there. Uh, the uh, as as I said, the Pasha is a succession of teachings about fundamental economic subjects, and then the very last verse says. Uh, keep my Sabbath and, and uh, respect my sanctuaries uh, because I am God. So a lot of people scratch their heads and say, what, well, what on earth has this got to do with anything? 
What's this got to do with, uh, with the economic Torah that we've been, uh, that we've been, uh, been involved in? And, and, and fascinatingly, uh, in, the, uh, in the English chapter divisions that we have, this is, this is a new chapter. Now, the people who did the, who did the chapter divisions, who were mainly uh, Christian scholars, entirely Christian scholars, said, okay, we're done with the economic stuff. It's going off in a more spiritual tack now. It must be a new chapter. But, uh, but the divisions of the Parshiot do not make it a new chapter. This is, this is somehow the capstone to the whole, uh, whole Parsha. So just so we're clear, somehow after all these rules about how we use our land and how we buy and sell land and, and the, the, the Jubilee year and the Shemitah year and how we relate to slaves and, and all of those other things, we, the, and after we, we seem to get this wonderful culminating sentence, which you mentioned that the Jewish people belong to me, the land belongs to me. That's great. That feels like the end. And then you're noticing here, we end up with these final couple sentences about not worshiping idols and keeping Shabbat. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're saying the Christian uh, scholars look at that and say, oh, this is obviously being something new. We, we moved from economics back to ritual, back to something spiritual. But you're arguing here, no, in fact, these two are connected. Uh, absolutely. And, the, uh, and the, the ancient divisions of the Pasha insist that they're connected because this is still part of Pasha Baha. So, so Rashi gives an amazing, amazing reading of this, which I've always, I've, I've always loved ever since I came across it. And th- this is what Rashi says. Now, Rashi says that the... Uh, uh, these final instructions of keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuaries are addressed to the person who at the end of the Pasha has, has gone so far as to sell himself in slavery to a non-Jew. And, and Rashi says the whole Pasha is an economic, a description of an economic, spiritual, uh, slippery slope, so to speak. So he says that this is the, the end of the Pasha, which begins with Shemitah and saying, you must, shouldn't trade on, the, uh, on, on Shemitah produce. That's forbidden to do. And if you're so greedy enough to do that, then what will happen next is that you'll end up trying to lend out money. Then, you're, then you'll sell your, um, your, your movable property, which you really shouldn't do. Uh, and then you'll send your land, sell your land, which is even worse. And then you'll lend on interest, which is really, really bad. That's forbidden from the Torah. And then if your you know, greed and cupidity extends to the point of view that, uh, to, to, to the point that, um, uh, that, that, that you're really desperate for money, then you'll sell yourself to a, first to a Jewish owner and then to a non-Jewish owner. And Rashi says, if you, even if you sunk so low, even if you degraded yourself so much don't say oh my master works on shabbat so will i my master wor- worships idols so will i no rashi is saying that these the instructions at the end are fundamental spiritual guardrails if you like uh teaching us about the basics of of holiness that are uh boundaries that you cannot cross however however far you've gone and however low you've sunk and the uh, messages even to somebody who's degraded themselves so far that they can still come back that they're still a Jew there's still holiness within them they're still part of this world of holiness and they, they can still return to it if they want 
and, and, and fascinated every, every step of this slippery slope. Rashi says, Lo chazabo, if he didn't, if he didn't do tshuva, if he didn't go back, then the next thing happens. Lo chazabo, then the next thing happens. And so, so you know, in answer to your question, Tzvi, um, at every stage, Rashi is giving a message of, of, of moral responsibility. He's saying, you know, you know, greed can, you can, can take you to the next step, but you're still free to recognize the spiritual element in, in, in economic life. At every stage, you're free and you're responsible to, you know, to return to this, this model of Jewish economic life where, where morality and holiness is at the core of it. You know, uh, first of all, it's such a beautiful sentiment and the idea that it's really never too late. Uh, and there's never a point where the Torah says, well, you're so far gone, we don't care about you anymore. Exactly. But it also raises this question of sort of this momentum that living uh, economic life, almost in its very nature, uh, excites within us a desire to own, to buy, to control, to have more. Uh, and, and a lot of us think of this as a modern problem, modern consumerism, but the Torah is telling us this has been a problem from the very beginning. By the very nature, God gives us a gift of land, but having this gift now comes with all these dangers, right? When we're in the desert and with uh, uh, collecting careful amounts of mana to each person, we don't live with these spiritual dangers. But living, quote-unquote, normal economic life comes with tremendous risks and uh, dangers. And I feel like what you're, you're telling us here is the Torah is also given sort of instruction of how these dangers don't need to overcome us, whether it's Shabbat, whether it's Shemitah, whether it's Yovel, it's giving us spiritual tools uh, to work with the very natural impulses that we have to want to own and take and exploit. Yeah. I, I, I think that's 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 beautifully put, actually, and and I, I find it fascinating that the you know, the, the the Brit at Har Sinai is uh, because it's Baha uh, is the Brit at Har Sinai is sealed on these mitzvot of Shemitah and Yovel. In other words, the entry into the land of Israel is coming into view. Uh, the uh, the desert life. Where you know where economics was easy because you just gathered the man, man as you say, that's about to be behind us. So they thought, and in fact, it would take forty years. And this is this is the contract. This is the terms and conditions under which you get you get economic plenty, you get land, you get blessing. But this is how the, these are the conditions you have to keep if that's going to work out for you, and not uh, God forbid, you know, be open to abuse by you. So if we want to live in the land, we better take Har Sinai with us. Mm -hmm. Mount Sinai better accompany us, or we're going to have a lot of trouble. Exa exactly. And the you know, and in, 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 in next week's Pasha, it's uh, it's virtually explicit that that exile is 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 the punishment for not uh, for not keeping Shemitah. So That's of course uh, I have to ask you: you're uniquely positioned to respond to this question as someone who is both a Torah scholar and lives a very active life in contemporary economic and business life. How are we doing today? What is, what is your take as you, as you come to your uh, assess, you look around in modern Israel and modern business development, how are we doing in integrating our spiritual values and economic growth and progress? 
Well, um, it's a mixed picture. I mean, not terribly. It's a not terribly, but uh, not not wonderfully either. Uh, I mean, I I feel very privileged uh, to have worked for a number of years um, in uh, in in businesses and you know Israeli high tech companies, which which really had a spiritual and ethical vision to them. I mean, I worked in Energia Global. We did solar projects in Africa, and it wasn't just about you know, making money. We, we wanted to, to, to bring uh, energy, clean energy, to some of the poorest people in the world. And we wanted to do it with, you know, with Israel's name on it to show that we were, we, we were involved in trying to solve some of the biggest problems in, uh, in the world today. And, and there, there, you know, in, in the world of high tech, I, I, I've come across a lot of companies, actually, which are founded by people in you know, medical technology and uh, educational technology with a real vision for making the world better. So, so I think it's little known, but I think it's worth, is worth saying that there's a, um, you know, the, 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 and in fact, I saw some, uh, some numbers that something like 80% of high-tech companies in Jerusalem have some kind of a social and ethical vision behind them. Wow. Uh, it's something about Jerusalem. It's not so true in Tel Aviv, but <laughs> but but here here in Jerusalem, that's uh, the you know people are not just about making money. Um, you know, in terms of uh, um, of uh, government welfare policy, well, you know, it's um, again it's a mixed picture. Um, I don't think we're doing too badly here. You know the you know, poverty and child poverty is much, much more than you would want it to be. Um, uh, and I think as all, you know, all welfare systems, you know, they, uh, they tend to end up becoming bureaucracy and it's very hard to, to, uh, you know, to sustain a sense of ethical and spiritual awareness in the way that, that national welfare policies are, uh, are carried out. So we're still struggling. Yes. Yes, but you've seen some positive uh, examples. It's doable. Um, yeah, and, and I think a great thing about Israel is the uh, uh, you know, the enormous number of amutot of NGOs, where where people with a you know with a moral mission are actually are working really hard to uh, to fill in the gaps in uh, in what the government is doing and. Uh, I mean, you have just around the corner the Israel Free Loans Association, which, uh, which is an amazing, amazing thing. Which is founded by my wife's uncle Eliezer Jaffe, by the way. Alava Shalom. <laughs> yeah, Alava Shalom. He did, In case he did my wife listens, I have to <laughs> say that. <laughs> so he did an amazing thing. Yeah. You know, he really took tens of thousands of people out of poverty, in a, and, and in a way which is, I think, in the spirit of Shemitah, dealing with every single person as an individual. I think, what do you need and how can we help you? And not as just as a welfare case. And of course, Shemitah, the remittance of loans and, and, and understanding how constant debt can just prevent a person from climbing out of the situation that they're in. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, that very point has got, got, got some of us thinking, well, how can, we, how can we actually make Shemitah more real as a, as a way of developing solutions to some of these economic and social and environmental problems. 
So, for example, in the, in the last Shemitah year, seven years ago, there were actually real and effective initiatives to, to remit debt for thousands of people uh, in the spirit of Shemitah. Now, there were a number of chronically indebted families who had a poor part of their, uh, of their debts remitted by the banks or the utilities, the electric company, whoever they mowed, pay, owed money to. And Pa'amonim, a, uh, uh, an NGO which helps people with household management, actually, you know, helped give them, give, them, uh, give them education about how to avoid getting in debt in the future. And this sort of Shemitah value of giving people a, a second chance uh, and, and letting them get out under this like, terrible burden of chronic debt this was actually given real uh, expression in, uh, in the economy. You know, listening to you now, it just makes me think about how for many of us, especially, especially in the observant world, Shemitah is about where you can buy your vegetables and can you make orange juice out of your oranges and do you rely on heteromachira, right, the leniency of selling the land and a lot of technical halachic debates about what happens. Uh, but I do feel that we are missing uh, this wider conversation of, of the spiritual values and how it should inform our life. I think maybe next time Shemitah comes up, you're going to have to take a year off before <laughs> Shemitah and go from shul to shul uh, in this country, uh, reminding all of us about what, what is really supposed to be happening here. Are you ready to sign on for that? It's, you've got six years to plan. <laughs> I, I, you know, absolutely, but you know, this time around, what I, you know, was why, why I wanted to bring out uh, this book by Ralph Cook, because I, I think Ralph Cook is absolutely is essential for understanding and bringing together the, you know, these two these two sides of Shemitah, you know, the, the the social and economic possibilities of Shemitah, and the you know and the halachic details side of Shemitah, which we what most of us are, you know, at least in the Orthodox world are involved in, and then because you know I, I really think that Ralph Cook saved Shemitah. I mean, I really just. I really don't know if we would be sitting here having this conversation about what to do with Shemitah, but, but for Ralph Cook, because a hundred years ago, it was, it was so unlikely that Shemitah would really survive in any real sense. I mean, it was just almost an insoluble problem for the, uh, for the farmers and the pioneers. And so Ralph Cook provided this way which Shemitah could actually continue by giving people the option to, you know, to avoid Shemitah, you know, through this technicality of the hetemachira of selling the land, uh, so you could continue to work it, work it, and and, but on the other hand, you know, as well as this amazingly bold halachic argument, alongside that, Rav Cook set out this beautiful vision in his introduction to Shabbat Haaretz about what shemitah could one day be when we actually do it, do it properly. So so he did these two things which were in tension with each other and one how can we can do Shemitah by not doing Shemitah by avoiding Shemitah and on the other hand how one day Shemitah is going to be so uh, amazing and so I think we've been you know living with that tension ever ever since and I think you know part some of these amazing initiatives to actually make Shemitah real are about people saying well let's take the visionary side of Ralph Cook and actually let's do something with that you know, rather than just taking the uh, the technical halachic side of Ralph Cook, so I, I've tried to bring that out in this uh, in, in in this book, which has just come out from Madrid. You know, especially because people point about how Israel uh, has a terrible problem of economic despair of 
what's the term, disparity, yeah. or yes. right, and that there's this class of very, very wealthy and too many poor people, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe this is an opportunity to really open up that discussion about why this might go against some of our core values, what we're trying to build here. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed, yeah. So you mentioned something to me. We actually prepare for this podcast, <laughs> folks. Uh, people don't really believe me uh, the, uh, that sometimes. But you mentioned something I think that was, well, everything you said is fascinating, but this one really caught me, and that is the connection that you made between corona and coming out of corona and Shemitah. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, in, you know, in some ways, uh, for Shemitah activists like myself, this Shemitah year has been, well, it, it wasn't quite as exciting as the last Shemitah year. I mean, last Shemitah year, there were all these initiatives that I spoke about. And this year, this time around, you know, partly because of uh, uh, corona and partly because of, you know, the political turmoil in Israel around the beginning of the Shemitah year, it was, um, you know, there was less of that. But looking at it in another way, uh, you know, Corona was an amazing education in some ways about what Shemitah means. By which I mean that, you know, when, you know, I used to have these utopia, I've been a, like a Shemitah chassid for a long time, I used to have these you know, conversations with people about, well, what if we could really do Shemitah in Israel? And uh, um, the people would say, nah, you could, yeah. Yeah, you can't just shut down a whole economy for months or a year at a time. That's crazy. And, uh, and except now that we know that actually you can. That's, that's exactly what we did. Not just in Israel, but, but throughout most of the developed world. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't pretty, and it wasn't fun for many people, to put it mildly. Uh, but it did simulate aspects of Shemitah which we could never imagine actually living before. For example, you know, we got to all experience what happens when you don't go to work for three or four months and you just sit at home and what do you do with that? And we also got to, got to see what happens to the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed in the society when that happens. And you have to reach out and embrace them and take care of them because they're the stuff people who suffer worst when the economy shuts down, which the Torah clearly understood. And we understood the connection between that and the environment, which is certainly part of Shemitah, because you know, after three or four months of not flying and hardly driving and a lot of factories not working, most of us actually felt and smelt and saw that the sky was a bit bluer and the bird song was a bit was was a bit was a bit uh, clearer, and the air was uh, was fresher, and so we experienced the ways in which all those environmental and psychological and social aspects of Shemitah bound up with one another. And I, I don't mean this to romanticize Corona at all. Uh, it was it was a horrible time for many people, but I actually mean it to de-romanticize Shemitah, that that Shemitah is. Uh, Shemitah is hard, and the, the Torah knew that it was hard. And in fact, in our Pasha, the Torah it says explicitly, I know that this is going to be hard. You know, it says to the person who's thinking, like, how am I going to keep Shemitah? Uh, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, how we, what are we going to eat? And don't worry, it'll be okay somehow. Uh, 
So the Torah knows that this is, uh, this is very hard. But out of, this, uh, out of this difficulty and out of this, uh, this pain uh, and this, uh, a greater sensitivity and a greater you know, some, you know, inner peace uh, emerges, which perhaps couldn't have happened in any other way. You know, it also strikes me that one of the other lessons of a pandemic, of course, is the limits of our control, mm. right? The sense that we live in a world where most of us go day to day with this impression we live in a world that we can control through technology and science and data and information. And along came this pandemic and reminded us of our limits. And uh, I feel to some degree Shemitah is also trying to remind us of our limits, that we are not in control of as much as we think we are. Uh, and that maybe the question of, well, how are we going to get by if we, if we let go? So we learn that uh, we can, sometimes we're forced to let go, uh, and indeed there are ways in which we can uh, survive, even though, of course, no one wants to go back through a pandemic again. Uh, I'm wondering, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if before we close, you share with me uh, a beautiful passage from Rav Cook that also you translate in your book about the, the social equality possibilities that uh, Shemitah and Yovel make possible. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a beautiful passage that Rav Cook has about what happened at the beginning of the Jubilee year. And um, so it's not clear what exactly happens at the Jubilee year, in the beginning of the Jubilee year in, in the Torah, or even when it starts. Because uh, there's a mission in Rosh Hashanah which says that the Jubilee year begins on the first day of the year of Tishrei in Rosh Hashanah. But the Torah says that there was a shofar blast at the beginning of, uh, of the Jubilee uh, on Yom Kippur. So, so what exactly happened between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? So there's, a, uh, there's a, a, an amazing Gemara in Rosh Hashanah 8b, which, uh, which answers that question. It says, from Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur, slaves would neither become free to go, to, to go home, nor would they remain slaves to their masters, but they would eat, drink, and rejoice with crowns on their heads. And when Yom Kippur would arrive, the Beit Din would sound the shofar. Slaves would, would, would go free, be free to go home, and fields would return to their original owners. So Rav Cook has a beautiful reading in, in this. He says that this period of the slaves sitting and eating and drinking on equal terms with their masters is a period of, uh, of, of peace and general forgiveness. He says, it's a time to fix the, the crookedness and brokenness of the past. Uh, it, it's a time, he suggests, where, where the, the, you know, the scars of being a slave and, and the resentments that the slaves no doubt accumulated uh, as, uh, as slaves to their masters have, have a chance for, for, for expression and, and are able to be heard. And Ralph Cook imagines, I think, that during this period that the, you know, the former slaves are selling their masters, yeah, that was terrible what you did for me. And do you know what it felt like when I had to do this? And, 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 you know, and can you imagine how much I disliked you and your family when, when, you know, when you treated me like this? And it's a time when this, you know, the, when the pain of, uh, of, of, that expression, of that experience has a chance to be expressed by the former slaves and to be heard and acknowledged by the, the former masters. 
And, and I really think that Ralph Cook, Ralph Cook was aware here of, of the dangers of uh, revolutions or even emancipations where people go free economically and politically speaking, but their pain about what's happened to them is not spoken and is not acknowledged. And there's see many, you know, many contemporary examples you could give of situations where people go free in a, in a formal official way, but they still carry a lot of pain, uh, uh, a lot of pain with them um, from their oppression. Um, and it comes back to where we started, uh, Rav Svi, that you know that in in in, in the Torah in this pasha, the you know, the economic and the spiritual are completely in interwoven. Rav Cook is saying that you can't have economic freedom without a without spiritual freedom as well. You know, it, it's very powerful what you just shared. And I think for me, the, the biggest chidush, the, the most important insight that you're, uh, for me personally, bringing is this sense that uh, we can renew, uh, we can improve. You know, I think for many of us, I think most people are basically good people. And we always wonder the question, if people are basically good, why don't we do more good things? Why aren't we more careful with environmental resources? Why aren't we more careful about how much of our resources we share for the poor? How come we're not more active or activist in, in looking for societal change? And I think, speaking on behalf of the, the average lazy good person, which I'm sure I am one of the card-carrying members, there's a sense of we can't really make a difference. It's all bigger than us. The economy's bigger than us. The environment is bigger than us. The forces that are brought to bear are just out of our control. And uh, we look at it sadly, and then we move, we move on with our lives. And I think that uh, one of the messages here, a very powerful one, that Shemitah and Yovel were a time of renewal and change. You know, Rav Cook's image of masters and slaves sitting down to meals together for 10 days and reconciling and healing uh, on both sides, it could be the master's got pent-up feelings, you know, you didn't produce as much as I had hoped when I invested in you in the first place, and the slave is feeling, you know, you didn't treat me with the kind of dignity I would have hoped, and, and, and people seeing each other for, uh, beyond the, the lens of uh, economic productivity or utility. And the idea that we really can change, we can grow, we can improve things, uh, and I feel like it's a strong message that... Uh, Stop seeing everything as inevitable. Uh, stop seeing as uh, the world as being, you know, out of your out of your grasp to repair or improve. But uh, it's almost like by acknowledging it's not all in our control, we can then seize some energy and initiative to try to fix the things that we can fix. Uh, yeah, I, I I think that's very true. I think the Torah is saying. You know, we're just about all of us card-carrying members of that uh, of that of that club, and 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 Shemitah comes to you know to shake us up uh, out of those mental and spiritual habits, and and remind us where it all comes from, that our wealth and our blessings and our economic prosperity comes from God and comes with these res responsibilities to to use them wisely and compassionately. Well, Rav Yadidya, I want to thank you as both an individual example of someone who combines the spiritual and economic in your own personal and professional life. Uh, and I want to encourage everybody out there to, if you're local, please come to Pardes next Sunday at 8 o'clock. 
Uh, and here, uh, Ravi Didi was an opportunity to share more of his Torah without me interrupting him all the time, uh, and per perhaps some highlights from his, his wonderful book. And of course, by his book, uh, uh, which is a translation and commentary on Rav Cook's uh, Shabbat Aras, the Sabbath of the Land, published by Magid. Thank you so, so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. It's a great pleasure. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or by visiting elmod.pardes.org for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Tune in next week as Rabbi Svi Hirschfeld and Rabbi Dr. Howard Marcos discuss together Parashat Behukotai. Thanks for listening.